following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. This morning I'm starting a series from Luke 18. There's a theme that kind of runs through Luke 18, the rest of the chapter we're going to look at. And that theme is basically humility. And um, I, I subscribe to a PowerPoint. I don't build my own PowerPoints because I have no skill with uh, graphic design. So I subscribe to this site that builds these PowerPoints, you know. And so I thought, surely, you know, people in the world somewhere preach on humbleness or humility. So I search for PowerPoint slide on humility. There was zero, zero. So apparently this is not a real common or popular sermon topic, so I'm sorry. Um, And there's two reasons for that. One, we've just conquered it, right? We just got it down. We are so humble that it's not necessary to preach about it anymore, right? Which I'm sure is true of us. not sure about the rest of the world, though, right? I don't think they're as humble as we are. Or it could be that it's just not something we are tuned into, that we are oblivious and somewhat clueless to its need in our life. Uh, it may be the second thing is more the case. Um, so uh, the, the message this morning is, is uh, the humility of confession. And let's uh, look in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. And if you'll read with me, along with me as I read. Uh, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not just like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give others all that I, uh, I give it tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Um, uh, in this story, who's the bad guy and who's the good guy? Now we all jump to we all know the answer to this, right? Bad guy is is the Pharisee. The good guy is the tax collector. The problem is. We jump to that conclusion too easily because we don't appreciate the value of who Jesus casts in these positions, right? Uh, The Pharisee, so so, so what we need to do is we really need to recast the characters, okay? Instead of telling the story of a a Pharisee and a tax collector who go into a temple, really we should tell the story this way. Two people went into church to pray, one a missionary, the other a customs official, right? Because that's really what the story is about. The Pharisees were the religious heroes of the day. They were the people who took the Bible and their faith most seriously and were most committed to living out the instructions of the law. 
The tax collectors in those days really were customs officials. Uh, the general taxes that people paid uh, were not assessed by these guys. These guys sit at to- sat at toll booths when people would bring goods in and out of the country and when they would travel through. And, uh, Israel was a crossroads for commerce and trade. And so they would sit, and you guys, you guys know the drill, right? You go through customs, and the guy sees your 12 suitcases because you're just coming back from the States full of all kinds of goods, right? And you can just see the dollar signs, the bot signs, whatever it is, in their eyeballs, and they say, oh, please, let's open your suitcase. And you have to bear all your personal belongings before them. And they are quite free, and it's quite arbitrary for them to decide how much they want to charge you for what you're bringing in. The same thing was true for these guys. And uh, they had a right to collect these duties. But the way they made their income was by padding the tax, right? And they, were, uh, they had a notorious reputation for being corrupt and for being cheats. And on top of that, they were um, working for the Roman government, so the Jews hated them. I mean, these guys were despicable. Nobody liked them. Okay, now I'm ask again, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy? Right. <laughs> uh, same story, but Jesus intentionally puts a twist on it, right? Uh, and really what Jesus is asking here is what kind of attitude is necessary to be in good standing, to be in right relationship with God? Okay, the Pharisee thinks he knows what is required to be in right standing with God. But Jesus says in the end, no, he does not get it. He has missed what's vitally important to be in right relationship and right standing with God, even though he is convinced he is. Uh, instead, it's the, it's the customs official. It's the crooked thief who ultimately understands what is required to be in right relationship with God. So let's look at this and unpack this parable and see what Jesus teaches about how we can be in right relationship with him. Um, again, let me read his introduction. Luke gives an introduction uh, to, to give us the background or really the intention for why Jesus gives this parable. He says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Uh, he doesn't name specifically the Pharisees, although it's interesting that the Pharisee is the main character in his parable. But this applies to anybody who has a, uh, a huge confidence that they're right with God. Right? Uh, now, does this mean we can't have a confidence in our right relationship with God? Well, we can. But we've got to be very careful what the basis of that confidence is. Um, the word they trusted in themselves is really the word to be confident. Okay, they were confident in themselves that they were righteous. That is, that they had a right standing with God. They were confident that when they came before God, when this Pharisee came into the temple, that he could come right into God's presence and boldly have a right to access with God. Well, what was the basis of his trust? What was the basis of his confidence? How was he so sure that he was worthy of God? Well, the parable explains the basis for his confidence, right? He prays, uh, standing by himself. Okay, this guy is not standing by himself because he's alone. He's, he's really in a class by himself. He sees himself above and beyond everybody else, and he says this. He says, uh, God, I thank you that I am not like 
literally the rest. Okay, not just other people, not just like some other people. Really, the, the literal translation would be, I thank you that I'm not like the rest of them. Okay, I am in a class all of my own. I am so spiritual and so godly. And he, he names some of the things that all the others, the rest, are guilty of. They're extortioners. Okay, they're cheats. They're thieves. They're unjust. They treat people unfairly. They commit all kinds of immorality like adultery, right? Like this tax collector. He's the epitome of all this, right? And on top of that, he uh, fasts twice a week and gives tithes of all he, get, all he gets. The basis for this guy's confidence is his uh, diligence to keep the law, to keep Scripture, to follow God's instructions. And he does it both positively and negatively. Um, he, he's careful to avoid the negative commands of things we shouldn't do. And he's commendable that he's not wicked. He's not cheating people. He, at some level, is, is honest and he's morally pure. Right? It's good. Uh, positively, he also does the things that the law commands positively. But not only does he does them, but he does them in excess. Right? Uh, in, in the law, it actually only commands the, the Jews to fast one day a year. Right? Uh, they were to have a day of fast of the Day of Atonement. But this, uh, many Jews had developed that uh, you should fast really at least once a week. And so it's quite commonly practiced to, if you were spiritual devout, you would fast one day a week. But this guy, he even doubles that. Right? I fast twice a week. Whoa. Give him a hand, right? Way to go. He, he, he's doing double duty, right? Impressive. Not only that, but I, I tithe everything. In Jewish circles, there was a real debate about tithes. Of course, any income you made, you should tithe, right? That was kind of standard. So if you went to the market and you sold, you know, a bushel of, of wheat and you made profit, you were to tithe what you made off that bushel of wheat. You were to give your first fruits as an offering, right? But here's the question. Once that, that, um, that grain has been sold and tithed, and then somebody makes a loaf of bread with it, and they resell it, and they sell a tithe off their profit, then when you eat the bread that's already been now tithed twice, do you need to tithe it? Well, the really, really devout said, well, yes. You should even, you should even tithe that, right? Uh, so, so imagine the picture, you know, you... If you had to tithe not only what you spent, but what you bought, right? Anybody up for that? Well, if you were serious, if you were really godly people, you would do that, right? And our, our, just think, I mean, I'm loving this as a you know, church, you know, we could double our income teaching this, you know. Tithe on what you earn, tithe on what you spend. Love that, right? This, this guy is zealous. He is serious, all right? He's going well beyond the minimum requirements of the law, right? And because of that, he feels superior to those around him, right? It says that, that they looked with contempt on the rest, right? Those who were not in the, at, at the level of commitment and spirituality that they were, who did not practice these things with the zeal they did, were just low-life scum, and they looked down on them. They had contempt on everybody else. Right? Um, so he is standing by himself, praying in a class by himself, celebrating before God with thanks. What a remarkable person he is. Right? And I love this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am so amazing. Right? What a prayer. Right? Uh, anybody feel like praying? 
uh, really feeling called to celebrate yourself in prayer, right? So we don't really we don't do this in church, thankfully, right? We don't we're not quite this brash about it. In Jesus' day, it may very well have been that Jesus was not exaggerating. A lot of commentators believe that Jesus is this, this is somewhat of a parable, but that Jesus was actually explaining something he had seen for real. That is very possible because that's kind of the attitude of the Jews in Jesus' day. Um, uh, and we look at it and we just, it's kind of laughable because we all know that if somebody stood up in church this morning, if, if you know, if Mike had come up here to do the pastoral prayer and if he'd gone on for, you know, praying about what a wonderful guy he was, we would all have a problem with that, right? And, and I would get lots of emails about, why is Mike an elder? What are you doing, right? And said Mike's prayer was very appropriate. His confession was good stuff, right? It was not about what a wonderful guy he is, even though he is a wonderful guy. Let's give Mike a hand. Right? Yeah. Um, so, so when we look at this, it's easy to think, well, thankfully, we're not like this, right? And we can pat ourselves on the back and be quite proud of the fact that we're not like this, right? Because we don't do this. However, if we are honest with ourselves, the truth is that pride is an especially difficult problem for every human being. Every human being. Right? And there's a good reason for it. Why is it that pride is such a problem for us? Well, the truth is, it is a problem for us because you and I were created by God for His glory. Right? We were created by God for greatness. Uh, God did not create us as worms in the garden, as bugs to be stepped on, right? He created us as the pinnacle of creation, created in His image. We were created in a way that we can share and come into and actually uh, carry in our being something of the glory of God. That's a pretty cool thing, right? It's a pretty cool thing. And there is something in us that knows this, that is in an instinct that we know we are destined for greatness. Uh, of course, the problem is that all the way back in the garden, Satan understood this need, this created design, and he used it to deceive and lead astray Adam and Eve. Right? He came, he tempted them, and a, a big part of the temptation is that if you eat of this fruit, you can be like God. Right? So in other words, we were created to receive glory from, from God and to participate with God in his glory. But Adam and Eve took a shortcut. And that shortcut was to create glory for, them, for themselves apart from God. Right? To be glorious in their own eyes. To be exalted in their own opinion. And to have a glory that exists removed from who God is and what he wants to bestow upon us. And so from that time on, we have been pursuing glory and greatness apart from God. Uh, we know we're destined for this, and we have a longing for it. We have a hunger for it. Um, so we've created uh, very inventive ways to to be great. Right? But the problem is, before God, we are not great. Without Him, any glory that we can manufacture is going to be weak and shallow. 
Um, and so you end up with Pharisees, right? And so here's this guy who, um, who sees his life as glorious, right? And he's honestly, and here's a, the scary thing about this guy. He's convinced this is all true. He's convinced as he stands before God that God himself is impressed with him, right? He's so self-deceived and self-deluded. Um, and he exalts himself, right? And he does not see uh, that the real issue is not his outward conduct or behavior. He is evaluating his life based on how he appears outwardly to his peers, to other people. But he's missed how God really sees him. Um, And the truth is that God sees not only the outward conduct, but God sees the heart. God sees the heart. Um, well, how do we make ourselves look good? Well, when we've lost God's glory, the next best thing is to compare ourselves with others, right? And this is exactly what he does. And we've all got quite good at this. The way to be somebody um, is to find somebody who's a no- who you think is a nobody and then compare yourself with them, right? Find some area where you're better than most, and make that the most important category and thing in life. And this is exactly what the world does. Right? The world has all kinds of, of ways that we give fame and glory. What are some of the ways? Well, if you're good with a, a ball, right? Either bouncing the ball or catching the ball or throwing the ball, you, you can be on the road to glory, right? You think about kind of how this works, the silliness of it. I'm good with the ball. I'm good with round things, right? Ooh, yay. You're the stud. You're the man. You're the hero, right? Because I can do things with round things that no other people can. So I am amazing, right? Uh, or we can do it with music, right? People who can play an instrument or sing or dance or uh, some kind of performing arts. So they can do it better than others, right? And they can excel and they can be famous, make a lot of money. Uh, some take the path of brain power, right? And they... They look down on those who waste their talents on balls and, and notes, right? And they have true brain power to think big thoughts, right? And so that's what gives them an advantage over others. And so they are exalted. Uh, if, if you have no capacity for sports or music or brain power, you, you hope you have at least good looks, right? And you can be Miss, Mr. or Miss Fashion, Right? And you can just be better, everybody, just by your beauty. Right? If you have none of those things, you know, then you've got to start inventing categories. Right? Now, that's how the world works. And that's how people in the world make themselves great. They find a category they fit in, they excel at it, and they try to show that when they're comp- they compare themselves to others, they are great. Now, here's the scary thing in all this. Religion is ideally suited to this game, right? Religion is ideally suited to this game. Um, Religion provides a set of standards and expectations of behavior by which I can compare myself against the performance of others. So if you're not good at sports, music, brain power, and have no looks, there's one last hope. Be a Christian. (laughs) Right? Ouch. Um... Now, it's true that the true, this is not the true purpose of religion. It's certainly not the true purpose of Christianity. 
the laws and standards and expectations are set before us to compare ourselves not with others, but with, with the holy character of God. And if we do that, the rightful use of religion is to, is to not to exalt us, but actually to bring us low. But uh, like this Pharisee, many have learned how to use religion as a category to make myself look better than others. I keep the laws. I, I am a moral person. I live a life that is respectable. I do very pious and religious things. And I do them twice as much as everybody else. And I can exalt myself. I can feel, look at how spiritual I am. Look at what a great person I am. And I compare myself with the rest of those mediocre Christians. Right? Those and you can name, you can put up, we can put a lot of titles here. We could, we could talk about other denominations, right? We could talk about other groups. We could talk about people who are not as spiritual as I am for whatever reason. Um, and so we can, we can be like the Pharisee, right? It's just a game of comparison. You probably heard the joke. It's an old one. I'm sorry, but I only know old jokes as I'm old. Um, guy went on a safari in Africa. And he was out, you know, looking at all the animals. And he asked his guide, um, you know, if, if a lion starts chasing you, can you outrun it? You know, is it possible? And his guide replied, well, I don't need to run faster than the lion. I only need to run faster than you. Right? That's how comparison works, right? We only need to be better than the guy next to me. And we can be great in our own eyes. Um, and, and the, the, the irony of all this is everybody does this, right? So when we compare ourselves with others, we choose a category we excel in and we pick on their weakness. But when they, that exact same person, evaluates themselves against us, they pick the thing that they excel in and they look at our weakness. So in this game, everybody wins, right? Everybody can feel good about themselves. The problem is uh, it's not true. Right? It's not truth. It is a glory based on a lie. Um, Jesus gives the rest of the story. He says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The problem with self-made greatness is that it's just, it's a lie, right? Compared to others, you might be better than others, but that is not the greatness that God designed you for. Um, and it overlooks a critical point uh, that we miss, that this Pharisee missed. And the point is this. It is not how you appear on the outside that counts. It is who you are on the inside. Uh, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And this Pharisee failed to take into account the true state of his heart before God. And what is the true state of every human being from Adam and Eve onward? Well, the true state of our heart is simply this. We are rebels against God. No matter how glorious and moral and upright our behavior is on the outside, in our heart, we are, by nature, rebels against God. Uh, this man had made 
self-glory an idol. He replaced the glory that God intended for him with the idol of his own glory, the idol of self-worship, the idol of popular opinion, the idol of fitting into the crowd and living up to people's expectations of what's respectable. On that basis, he was a hero. But the truth is he was an idol worshiper who had rejected God and was guilty of insurrection against the king. That's the condition and truth of every heart in Adam. We esteem ourselves based on our outward appearance and our outward conduct, but we fail to see the truth of our heart before God. Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. We've turned and gone our own way. We have left the shepherd and we've rejected his love and his glory uh, and his lordship over our life. Uh, The tax collector at some level gets this. And he comes into the the temple and he, he feels totally unworthy, truly unworthy of God. Uh, there's three descriptions of how he came in. First, he stood far off. Unlike the Pharisee who came right into the, the center of the temple, as far in as he could get, this man stood off at a great distance, feeling unworthy to come near to God. Uh, he, secondly, it says he could not lift his eyes to heaven. Right? He was ashamed of who he was before God. Um, thirdly, it says he beat his chest as a sign of contrition. Okay, we don't do this much anymore. <laughs> uh, maybe we should start practicing this, right? It's, it's a sign of great sorrow and contrition, of grief over what we have done uh, against God. He comes, with, he comes with a heart and attitude of contrition and confession. And he cries out to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Right? His prayer is not about himself other than his unworthiness. It is primarily a plea to God for help because he realized he is in desperate need of grace. Desperately in need of grace. You see, he understood that he had rejected God and had wounded God's God's love, had cut himself off from God's favor. Um, And so he cries out for mercy. Uh, This form of the word mercy is kind of a unique word, and it's not the the general word for mercy, which means uh, finding favor or kindness from somebody, especially a superior. But in this context, it really has the idea of of placating or appeasing, or literally being placated or appeased uh, to expiate or make propitiation for. I know those are like really big theological words that nobody uses anymore. What it means is this. It means that God has every right to be angry with us and we know it. Uh, And that there's nothing we can do to fix the problem. There's nothing we can do because the damage has been done. And so we come before God with, with one hope that he will turn aside his wrath and anger that we rightly deserve. That somehow he will propitiate. That is, he will calm his anger and direct it elsewhere instead of toward us. And will give us 
a pardon we don't deserve. We'll forget about our transgression, which we do not deserve. And of course, we know that God did that for us through Jesus on the cross, right? Jesus stood before God and took the blow of God's wrath in our place. He took the punishment and wrath that was should have come upon us to make peace between us and God. Uh, that's the mercy that this man is calling for. That's the weight of that word. A more practical way to illustrate it is this. Uh, don't raise your hand, but have any of you guys especially forgot your anniversary? Okay, It's, it's, a, it's, it's probably a mistake you've only made once. <laughs> if you made it twice, I pray for mercy for you. Right? Uh, I, I made this mistake. And of course for guys... It goes like this. You know, we forget our, our anniversary because we're just really busy and we don't even know what day it is. We don't even know what month it is, right? Half the time, I don't know what year it is. And uh, so, you know, you want me to kind of be you know, clued into a specific day of, out of 365 of them, right? So for guys, we have all these lame excuses, right? But for our wives, what it means if we forget is that our marriage does not matter and that they as a person do not matter to us. Right? That's kind of the message that we communicate if we forget. So uh, I have to confess that I did make this mistake once. once, right? And uh, realizing way too late, uh, you know, what it, what it did to, to Denise. You know, that it, it hurt her deeply that I did not value her and our relationship enough to remember. To remember that vitally important day. And here, here's the problem with this kind of... There's other sins that, you know, are bad. But the problem with this, when you forget something, there is no way to undo that. Like, like you can go out and buy your wife the Hope Diamond. But it doesn't change the fact that you forgot. Right? It does not change the fact that you, at, at that past moment, did not value the relationship enough. No matter what you do now, right, it does not undo it. Right? Um, there's only one hope. There's only one hope, that your wife will, will be appeased from her anger and will decide to love you even though you're an idiot. Right? Praise God. Somehow God's given wives, women this capacity. Or those other those guys would all be in trouble, right? Amen? Yeah, amen. You better, you better have say amen loudly. I'm telling you, okay? Um, See, that's, that's a picture of, of, of this kind of mercy, right? It's, it's being wronged. It's being hurt deeply. It's being in a place where the person who has offended you can't do anything to take away what they have done wrong. But you choose for the sake of the relationship to put aside that wrong, and you love them anyway. You appease your anger, and you choose to show forgiveness and grace and pardon. That, that's what this man's calling for. He says, God, I know I have been a, uh, a rebel against you. I have rejected you. I know there is nothing I can do to change that. I am begging you for mercy, that you would turn aside your wrath and you would show me kindness and favor, that you would pardon me and allow me to enter back into a right relationship with you purely on the basis of your compassion and grace. 
Would God do that? Praise God, He does. Amen? Praise God that He does that. That through Christ, not only does He do it um, just on general principle, but He does it on a principle of justice through the cross. But He's made it possible for us to receive forgiveness. He's made the way for us to come to Him and find mercy. Uh, and I love the way this ends. Uh, he, he says, um, you know, he who exalts himself, right, he who pursues self-glory through his own means will be humbled. Right? He will not, and he will be humbled at judgment. Right? That's kind of the implication of this parable. He will humble, be humbled when he stands before God in final judgment and finds out that he is not in right relationship with God a bit too late. And he will be cast down as a wicked, the wicked evil person that he is based on the judgment of his heart, not his actions. But to the one who will humble himself, he will what? He will be exalted by God. You want to be great? This is the path to greatness, right? Learn to humble yourself before God and he will pour out upon you his glory, right? He will fill you with the glory of his own presence and of his own self. He will make you the kind of person who is truly good, not just outwardly, but inwardly. Um, Jesus is not teaching here that we all ought to be crooks, and that's okay. He's saying that we are crooks. (laughs) And the only way to get past that is through the cross. And he wants to exalt us. He wants to make us into the kind of person he intended us to be. And, of course, he does that through the cross where he takes our wicked, rebellious heart and he replaces it with a new one. He gives us a heart that longs to obey and follow and worship and serve and that can receive God's love and follow him. Let me close with just three practical steps for how we can um, implement this in our everyday life. Because I believe this is something we have to practice daily. Humility does not happen accidentally. You don't just accidentally fall into it. I'm telling you, it doesn't work that way. It takes effort. And here's three things you can be doing to put it into practice. First thing, stop the comparison game. Right? Stop living your life in a way that's designed from beginning to end to compare how you perform with that of others. Whatever the category you choose, right? It doesn't matter if it's sports, intellect, Charm, looks, religion, morality, Christian service, right? Stop comparing yourselves with others. Right? Now, this does not mean that you should not excel at things, right? All of you have gifts. All of you have things that you can do better than everybody else. That's a gift, right? Develop it. Use it. Be the best you can be. Uh, but... When you do that, recognize where that gift came from, right? You're not better than everybody else because you're great. You're better at that than everybody else because God made you that way and has gifted you and given you a capacity for that. Give him praise and thanks for those talents and develop them. Be excellent, right? But do those things as worship to God, right? If it's playing instruments, do it with worship to God. If it's building spreadsheets because that's what you're great at, do it as worship to God. Whatever it is you excel at, do it as a gift of praise and worship to God, giving Him thanks for it. 
And the question should never be, how did I do that compared to somebody else? The question should always be, did I do it to the best of my ability? Because the reality is a lot of people who really excel at things, uh, because they do it better than everybody else, never really get to the point of excellence they could. Because they're content with being better than others, not with being the best God created them to be. Uh, So yeah, be excellent, but don't do it in a way that is a comparison how you measure up against somebody else. Secondly, um, remember our rebellion. Uh, The truth is, uh, we cannot really pray this prayer if we are a believer, like like the sinner's prayer, right? Um, When we first come to Christ, we pray, God, I am a rebel. My heart is totally wicked. I have in every way gone against you. But the good news of the cross is that Jesus replaces that rebellious heart with a new heart. He makes us new creatures in Christ. So we, we no longer have that s- stubborn, rebellious heart. Um, we are, by, by, by God's grace, changed into creatures who long to worship and follow him. But never forget where we came from, right? Daily, regularly, we should come to the cross and realize that the beginning of our journey with Christ began as people who were uh, rebels, who rejected God, who hated him. We did not pursue God. We ran from him. It was only by his grace that he reached out and grabbed hold of us. Uh, There is great value in remembering where we came from, and the value is this. Um, it's like Paul. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote half the New Testament, right? But what, notice what he says. He says, Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he has graciously given me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about Christ. Paul thought of himself as the least deserving of all God's people, right? And, and First Timothy says this, uh, God had mercy on me, so that Jesus Christ could use me as an example of his great patience with the worst of sinners. There's great value in remembering that. And the value is this, that when we see people who are not as together as we are, when we see people who are sinners, when we see people who are caught in addictions, when we see people who do not measure up to our standard of moral excellence, Christian or otherwise, right? We look at them and we look at their struggle and their sin and we do not judge them, right? We do not have contempt on them. We realize that is me, right? That is me. If it wasn't for Christ's work in my life, that is exactly what I would be. And worse, right? It is only by God's grace that I am not stuck in that sin, in that bondage that place. Lastly, uh, again, a daily habit, a daily practice of of confessing to God our sin, of coming before God and learning the practice and the discipline of daily confession. I love that this morning Mike, in his prayer time, spent a time of corporate confession. It is vital to the growth of a Christian. And I'll be honest, for a long time, uh, I'd hear that and I would try to practice it and I would go to my closet and I would pray 
And I'd, and I'd say, okay, God, I'm going to confess my sins. And, I, and this is the honest truth. I'm not lying. I'm just kind of stupid this way. I would think, and I would think, and I would think, and I'd think, and I'd say, God, honestly, I don't think I sinned today, right? And I really wasn't being proud. I was just being stupid, right? So I think, you know, I didn't, I didn't like, I didn't sleep with somebody other than my wife. I didn't lie. I, I didn't cheat anybody. I don't remember beating anybody up, you know. God, I, I don't think I sinned today, honestly, right? Well, like the Pharisee, if you only look at your outward behavior and conduct, you may not have a lot to confess, right? My mistake was I failed to look at my heart, right? I, I, I was not looking inwardly at the, the attitudes, intentions, and thoughts of my heart. Maybe I had not slept with a, a girl other than my wife, but did I look lustfully at some? Oh, yeah, right? Um, was I was I proud of my great spirituality? Oh, yeah. Right? Was I was I comparing myself to others and saying, man, it's just a shame that everybody can't preach as good as I do. Right? Okay, not only is that just crazy, it was just ridiculous. Right? Because there were a lot of way better preachers out there than me. I just wasn't choosing to look at them. Right? If we truly examine our heart and we open it up before God and say, Holy Spirit. Reveal to me the ways that my heart is not what it should be. I do not every day love God like I should. I do not every day love my neighbor as I should. I am filled with pride and self-glorying and worrying about myself and lack of faith. And I can go on down the list. And now I'll tell you, when I have my daily time of confession, it's one of the longest chunks of my prayer, right, sometimes. Because there's plenty to confess, there's plenty to confess. Because okay? my heart has changed, but it's not there yet. And there's a lot of still rebellious, stubborn, self-serving attitudes. Um, practice the discipline of humility. Right? Confess your sins before God. Humble yourself, and He will exalt you. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.